If you have your Bible, if you turn to James chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, you can use the pew back in front of you, and this is on page 177 in the New Testament, so the second half of the book on page 177. The numbering starts over in the New Testament. Every person is created by God and in God's image. And this is true of all people without exception or distinction. And these realities adorn everyone with equal dignity and worth. And, and this is something that is inherent in them and not earned by them, and therefore it cannot be changed. But even though all men are created equal, all men are not treated equally. And if we needed a reminder of this, the video footage of the unjust execution of George Floyd and the following rioting around the nation due to the spillage of pent-up tension the past few days should be enough to pique our attention. But as I've already said, the reality is this sermon on this text could feel catered to current events no matter when it is preached because these are always current issues. Since the fall, mankind has been warped by the sin of partiality. And this is true for all of us. And this is true for those who are not Christians. And this is true for those who are Christians. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. beautifully championed the ideals of equality, brotherhood, justice, and impartiality in that famous I Have a Dream speech delivered in 1963 at our nation's capital. And he famously said then, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. If we turn on our national news, we know that this dream is not yet our reality. And not long after this speech, he said, we must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution in America. And if we look around this room today, and in thousands of other churches across our nation, we'd have to agree the same is still true today. In our world and in our church, partiality runs rampant. And when I say our church, I'm not just talking about FBC Camden, I'm talking about the church at large. But brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. The God-given ideals highlighted in King's speech, the sorrow and mourning felt primarily by black people across our nation, the righteous indignation that cries out for justice and change, all of these are meant to be faithfully modeled to humanity by the church. 
We are the ones who are meant to show our community the way forward because we are looking to the One who has gone before us. And with Christ as our example, we Christians are called to put off partiality and put on impartial love. Now, lest you misunderstand my intentions or James's intentions here, this isn't just true for ethnic partiality, but impartiality in all its forms. So far, I've just been applying this on an ethnic standpoint. But that's what we're going to see from James this morning, that we put off partiality and put on impartial love. And before we look at the first seven verses together, let me pray. Father, this is a weighty text. This is a weighty sermon. But we trust that by Your Spirit You have brought us to this text in Your own timing in order that You might give us a word to lift us up and not break us down. This is the law of liberty, the law of love. And we trust You this morning as we come to Your Word asking You to shape us after the image of Your Son who laid down His life for those who hated Him. We ask that you would do a great work among us and in us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we see that we're to put off partiality because of God's present judgment. Put off partiality because of God's present judgment. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, James has already called Christians to think differently than the world of the poor and the rich. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 9 and 11, through 11. And in the verse just before our text this morning, he even asserts that real religion includes caring for those the world neglects. And this principle extends well beyond the orphan and the widow to all who are marginalized and oppressed. Christians are called to enter into their affliction both to be there with them in it and to seek to alleviate it when and where we can. But unless we think of wading into others' troubles romantically and thereby naively, we need to be well aware of its difficulties. There is a certain selfishness in our sinful natures that seeks to lure us always toward comfort and ease. And when we listen to that voice, we find it easy to justify checking out of the hardships around us because they're not our hardships. And this is at least part of what's going on in our hearts as we interact with other people. 
In our sin, we are prone to think only of ourselves. And when that happens, partiality is not far behind. And that's the culture we live in. But Jesus condemns that kind of character among Christians. Christians are commanded to hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with no partiality. Partiality and Christianity don't mix. Why? Because the Scriptures teach us time and time again that God is not partial. And if God is not partial, then we have no business being partial either. And the partiality that James is talking about is an attitude of personal favoritism, as the New American Standard Version translates it. It's a biased opinion based on whatever has informed our own judgment. And when we're partial, it reveals where we place worth. It may be on riches, like in the example here. It could be on blood relations, skin color, cultural backgrounds, group affiliation, or any number of limitless things that we have deemed significant. But the other side of the partiality coin is prejudice. If you're partial toward one, you will be prejudiced toward another. And there's always some form of discrimination whenever partiality is involved. And we tend to show partiality, I think, to those who are either like us, those we want to be like, or those that we have ascertained can benefit us in some way. And James puts his finger on the problem with that in verses 4 through 5. To show partiality is to treat people based on our own sinful assessment instead of God's. Look at the example of this in verses 2 and 3. Two men show up for church and some members approach them. One of them they deem is rich based on his clothes, and one they deem is poor based on his clothes. And based on those external appearances, the two men receive different treatment. Neither one of them is run off, mind you. They're both, quote-unquote, welcome to be there. But the rich man is honored, while the poor man is dishonored. Friends, Do you find yourself feeling or acting differently toward people who are like you than toward those who are not? Does your attitude, your disposition, or even your level of engagement change based on someone's economic bracket, their social standing, their political party? their ethnicity or gender or nationality or age? Have you made assumptions about a person's character based on the car they drive or the clothes they wear or the part of town they live in or maybe even in church context and the way they express themselves in worship? Do you find yourself seeking out the popular, the pretty, the funny, and avoiding the awkward or unpolished. The reality is, we are all guilty. 
And even though we might want to deny it, in our pride, we are all prone to be partial. We're all prone to be prejudiced people. And I want to plead with you, even right now, that you fight by the Spirit against that impression in your heart that says, well, I don't really know if that's true of me. I know of lots of people that is true for, but mine isn't that significant. But are you genuinely glad to be around people who are different from you? Do you look forward to it? Or do you dread it? Tolerating is not enough. You see, our sin has rewired the way that God made us to relate to other people. Every person is created in God's image, and being made in the likeness of God means that each of us possess a value and dignity that can't be changed or taken away. We've understood that. But this foundational truth is meant to inform how we relate to absolutely everyone, even if they're an atheist. Even if they have all kinds of errant, biblical, unbiblical positions on sexuality. This doesn't mean that we should ignore all of the distinctives of each individual and say things like, well, I don't even, I don't even see color. I don't even, I don't even see your background. It's, you're all, all the same to me. That's not helpful because then you're not seeing the individual. But it does mean we shouldn't treat anyone better than another based on our own favoritism. Brothers and sisters, this is a real, real struggle for all of us. And in one sense, it can even be difficult for us to be aware of our inherent partiality because it's the water we're swimming in. And we might not even have many deep relationships with people who are different from us. I know I don't. But if you're convicted like me of your failings here, then let me encourage us together that that's a good start. Where God has wrought conviction in us, there is the possibility for growth And we're here as a church family to help one another grow in biblical faithfulness in this area as well as every area. So then, friends, on a real practical level, let's not be the kind of people who have conversations at the expense of a group of people. Let's not make jokes that belittle that certain group of people, whatever the group is for you. Let's intentionally Reach out and seek to befriend people who are not like us, even when it's slow going and doesn't come natural. And when we do, let's be slow to speak and quick to listen. Let's work not to just have all types of people attend our gathering, but to be a part of our family. Let's commit as a church that partiality of any kind, I don't care what it is, It is an evil that will not be tolerated among us. And let's live before the Lord with an openness to take seriously any charge that might be brought against us here as we learn to be sensitive to the cares and concerns of people who are different from us. I'm not talking about compromising on biblical faithfulness and standard and doctrine. I'm talking about listening. I'm talking about being wise to lay down our preferences and opinions when we can do so for the sake of peace and mutual upbuilding. 
You see, the world looks down on different groups of people. And that should bother us. I think it does bother us when we are the group of people it looks down on. But we should care about all people. As the church of the living God, we are called to be different. And brothers and sisters, we must view people as God does. And we've already seen that we share being created in the image of God with every person on the planet. But as Christians, there's an even deeper reality at stake. And this is brought out in verse 5. Regardless of anything else that may be true about a person, all those with faith in Christ Jesus share the same identity, standing, inheritance, and promises. And so though the man in shabby clothes may be poor in this world, if he's a Christian, James says, he's rich in faith and an heir of the kingdom. And James' intention isn't to suggest that the rich man from this example is an unbeliever and that the poor man is a believer. Neither is he suggesting that God has chosen to save every materially poor person and no materially rich person. Rather, James is highlighting the shift that should take place in the Christian's thinking to view every person from an eternal perspective and not an earthly one. Each person has a soul that will exist for all eternity, either in the presence of God or away from it. But unless we misunderstand our beginnings in the faith, the Scriptures tell us time and time again that if we are Christians this morning, we have zero grounds for pride. If we were the ones choosing people unto salvation, we would pick them like kids do for a kickball game. We'd have our eyes on the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, but those weren't God's qualifications. In fact, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God hasn't chosen people because of anything in them, but because of everything in Him. By choosing the poor in the world, God is displaying the riches of His mercy and grace without partiality. And if God judges them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, then our judgment ought to follow suit. God didn't appoint us to eternal salvation because we're white, because we're well-off, because we're from good families that we grew up in church, we're educated or Republican, and so we had better not treat other people like He did. Christians, the grace that Jesus has shown us meant that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor so that by His poverty we might become rich. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And that's why it's so striking that James would call him intentionally the Lord of glory at the end of verse 1. Jesus is the one and the only one that we should be showing special attention to. Not the rich and the famous of this world. And when we honor Jesus, we will follow his example of treating all people with dignity, including the ones our world sets aside. Friends, we dishonor people when we view them and treat them as the world does instead of how God does. And we must not dishonor the one that God has honored. And to further expose this irony, James includes another reason to condemn the partiality they're showing between the rich and the poor in verses 6b through 7. It's actually the rich and not the poor who are mistreating them. And this might not be exactly the same in our settings, but it's easy to see how this principle could work itself out, isn't it? How common is it in churches for wealthy members to be given preference even when they are unspiritual and controlling? How many of us know of examples of big donors being catered to in moments of conflict within the church or at least it being brought up to people's attention how much an offended party contributes for the reason for the church siding with them? And I don't know of any of this happening within our church. I just have been a pastor's kid and around churches long enough to know this is probably true in our church, even though I don't have it a specific example in mind. This is often a battle we face. But friends, a person's worth to God and their contribution to the church is not his or her giving statement. The rich need to remember that, but the poor do as well. Let's serve and care for the least of these as unto the Lord. And let's remember that we are all one in Christ Jesus and there is no division in Him. So then let's put off partiality because of God's present judgment. But instead, in verses 8-13, through 13, let's put on impartial love because of God's future judgment. Put on impartial love because of God's future judgment. Pick up with me in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now the way we conquer partiality in our hearts is to replace it with love. It's not just stop being partial. Don't be prejudiced. It's love in its place. We know God is love, and Jesus taught that all of the law and the prophets hinge on love, both love for God and love for others. 
And Jesus instructed His disciples in John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There is no true Christian who doesn't love God and love others. But don't be confused. That doesn't mean we don't have to work for it or fight for it. And when James speaks of someone really fulfilling the royal law, he's not just presenting a hypothetical scenario. As Christians who are no longer slaves to sin, we have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. So Paul says in Romans 6, and although this is hard to fathom, I understand as someone who sees my sin very clearly, the Holy Spirit works in our lives to make us more like Jesus, and as He does so, we truly do uphold the law, according to Romans 3. So when James references a category of people who consider themselves to be fulfilling the royal law, they aren't deceived by pride, at least on the most charitable understanding of what's happening here. They're, they're doing well, he tells them. He's not being sarcastic. But James also wants to make sure that we recognize that if we really love people, then we won't be partial. Now, we need to hear this. Because sometimes we put partiality way down here and say, well, there's no way for me to totally be rid of partiality in all its forms. I just instinctively make judgments about people and where they're coming from. And I, I don't mean to do it. It just happens. You, you mean to tell me that that's the same thing as murdering or committing adultery? Well, on the authority of God's Word, yes. We can't love our neighbor while we're sinning against them, and showing partiality is sin. And this is serious, we know, because in 1 John 4.20 we see, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And James brings this seriousness home in verse 10. And this is a familiar verse to many of us, but what does it mean? If you're here and you're not a believer, I, I wonder if you think this seems fair. I mean, if I get one wrong answer out of a hundred well, then I, I got a 99 at school, not a zero. So what's James getting at? Well, the fact is, James, God demands our total allegiance. If we intentionally settle or rebel against one of His commands out of a hundred, He doesn't see us as 99% allies. He sees us as 100% rebels. This is a pass or fail class. We don't get to pick and choose which commandments of Scripture we're going to obey. And James says, if we don't commit adultery, but we do murder, we're every bit as much a lawbreaker as if we'd committed adultery and did not murder. The point is this, no sin, including the sin of partiality, can be overlooked. When God graciously brings the darkness of our sin into the light, the only acceptable response our love for God and others will allow is for us to repent of that sin. 
And one commentator puts it this way. Think how foolish it would be for someone to object. I didn't commit adultery. I merely murdered someone. What's the big deal? And James implies that the objection, I merely gave the rich guy a better seat, will be met with equal incredulity in the courts of heaven. This is especially important given the ease with which we are often able to excuse our partiality or its sister prejudice. Have you ever thought one or more of the following? Well, they've never taken an interest in me, so why should I go out of my way to take an interest in them? Well, rubbing shoulders with him would help me get ahead. It's best for us to separate so that they can have their customs and we can have ours. If, if they don't have enough money or common sense to pay their bills, then it's their own fault. Loved ones, we need to evaluate our personal convictions on politics, poverty, education, marriages, the criminal justice system, and a whole host of other things in light of God's Word to us here. I don't say these things because of political correctness. I say them because of the Bible. I don't say these things because of current events. I say them because of the Bible. Church, can't we see the tension and turmoil building in our nation? Don't you understand that there's so much difficulty finding solutions because they're trying to solve problems with only part of the equation? We, the people of God, should not be playing catch-up. We should be leading the way. Because we have the gospel that they're missing. But what does it say about us when just like the world, we look to our politicians to solve our problems instead of Jesus? There's no Republican or Democrat or socialist or independent or whatever party you can think of that can bring the healing that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone can bring. And I'm not saying that the gospel shouldn't change our laws or our politics. It should. But I'm saying it's time for the church to rise up and lead the way in light of His Word. And we are not a part of that. We are not separate from that command. These are not just social issues. These are Christian issues because we have the gospel that changes all of who we are from the inside out. The law of liberty requires us to love in word and thought and deed. And one of the main ways that we show love to others is as simple as showing them mercy. In this context, to show mercy means to withhold judgment. No one in this room, without question, wants to be wrongfully or prematurely judged, do we? Well, then if we're going to love others as ourselves, then we need to show others that same mercy. Now keep in mind, like in any real family, I don't say this because I was just with 25 of my closest family, there are going to be times where we each and every one of us feels offended by another member of the church. 
But in a loving family, we give the benefit of the doubt. In a loving family, we forgive. In a loving, loving family, we try as much as possible to understand them. And here's why that ultimately matters. How we respond to those who sin against us gives us a foretaste of how God will one day respond to us. How we respond to those who are different from us gives us a foretaste of how God will one day respond to us. If we're merciful as He is merciful, we will receive His mercy and not His judgment. However, I would want to caution you that it's not that our giving mercy is what causes us to receive mercy, but rather what James is getting at, and we'll see this amplified in the next passage, is that showing mercy displays the new hearts that God has given us as ones who has received His mercy. But now just ask yourself the question, how can sinners... Like you and me receive mercy from a holy and just God instead of His judgment. How could mercy ever triumph over judgment for you and for me? Well, the answer is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience the law required. He always showed love. He never showed partiality. He died on the cross for the sins of His people. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Rich people, poor people, black people, white people, educated people, uneducated people, old people, young people, people without distinction. He bore the judgment and wrath of God for our every transgression, including partiality and prejudice. But He also rose from the dead to prove once and for all that God's mercy triumphs over His judgment for all who look to Jesus in repentance and faith. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, Maybe you felt slighted by the church in some way. Or, or maybe you feel like the church isn't doing enough to put this passage into practice. Well, it's no secret that the church hasn't always done a great job of living by James's words here. Our own conven convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, was birthed out of a controversy over slavery. Sadly, most churches in America still reflect the segregation that King observed so many decades ago. We have tended to speak up on issues related to those like us and remain silent on those that we feel aren't. And as someone who often loses the battle with the sin of partiality, on behalf of God's people, I want to ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have lied about what Christ is like. Jesus never has and Jesus never will show partiality. And that's why the good news is not for you to trust in me as a pastor or a Christian or in the church as a group of Christians. It's to trust in Jesus. He's the only one who will never fail you. We all will. Regardless of anything about you, 
if you will believe in Jesus and turn from your sins, you will be saved. You will be made a son, a daughter of the king, and receive the inheritance of an heir. The love of God welcomes you home. It calls you, beckons you home. So then come to God today by believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about what this looks like for you, I'd be honored to talk to you at the end of this service. Just a closing word to the church. Our belief in the gospel is what causes us to show mercy because we see the infinitely greater mercy that God has shown us in Christ. It's when we show love and not partiality that we are reflecting the character of our great God who has poured His love into our hearts by His Spirit. And I want to be as clear as I can that rooting out partiality in our lives, our church, our community, our nation, our world is incredibly complex. So often we're blind to the subtle sources of our prejudice, but even still, I stand before you with the great confidence that God in His gospel will charter the course for us to lead us home. Soon and very soon, these issues and our sin will be totally and finally eradicated. But until that day comes, within the church of the living God, let's take steps toward glory by killing partiality with love. Let's pray together. Father, if I've said anything unhelpful or untrue, I say it would fall out of our minds. But if I have spoken in faithfulness to your word, I ask that it would take root down within our hearts and spring up and bear much fruit. Father, none of us Me, above all, none of us claims to have all of the intricate answers to this problem, but we have the greatest answer to our greatest problems. And we know that because of what Christ has done, all other problems and issues can be overcome. And we trust that though that won't ultimately be true in this world, as a church that you have brought from darkness into light, we should be the proving ground the first foretaste of what this will look like in the new heavens and new earth. Give us grace to stand. May you get glory from our church in particular as we strive to be faithful, gospel-centered people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.